your brain might turn to putty. But there's still a chance to learn. We'll be your study buddies. We're going to talk about some stuff and make research cool. Hello again, and welcome to Study Buddies, a podcast where we bring you new developments in science and psychology. And sometimes more. <laughs> Hi, my name is Paula Sanchez-Abreu. And my name is Taylor Collins. How you doing, Taylor? How's your week been? Um, Right now, I'm very tired. Um, However... <laughs> Join the club, girl. Yeah, I'm just like, this is just, we're like hitting a wall. It's like 930 at night as we're recording this, but we're, we are powering through. Um, Powering through. I have like recognized that during this quarantine, I am doing this thing where I'm just like alternating between having like very, very intensely healthy weeks where I like work out like most days and like have really like balanced meals and then like the next week I will just like hit a wall and it's like microwaved dinners and like chocolate um and I work out maybe like once or twice and so I just keep going back and forth between the two of like healthy and indulgent that sounds like a just like a microcosm of what my every month is like because of a periods yeah that's fair <laughs> like usually the chocolate yeah. is accompanied by like marathons of Grey's Anatomy, which is like not doing anything for my brain, but it is soothing. So I guess that's fine. And you are watching people pour their emotional souls okay, I, out you know what I, in Grey's Anatomy. I am going to say this. The more that I watch Grey's Anatomy, the more mm-hmm. that I, I have found that it is a work of art. Some of the life quotes yeah. there are like very profound and like, yeah. I think it's like this is my second time watching it through and I don't think I recognize that the first time. So um, I do recommend it. It's very basic drama TV show, but see, very good. I I know everything I know from Grey's Anatomy by um, listening to a lot of people that love Grey's Anatomy talk about Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> That's hysterical. And so I can say from their opinions that I have learned that, um, and I also know this because like I love Shonda Rhimes, but Shonda like killed it with the show and Sandra Oh is a queen and um, there's just pure poetry and everyone is acting their faces off. And that, I don't know, I feel like that fills your soul with a little something, something. Yeah, it's it's quite nice. I rec- It's just a good, like, thing that you can just kind of put on and relax and not pay attention to. Because, you know, some of the more intense, like, dramas are a lot right now. Um, I think the world is yes. very chaotic. So I want something, like, that I, in my TV downtime to be very, like soothing and it's just a lot of people you know screwing around in hospitals yeah like but because like not in a intense way well (laughs) but like sometimes it's intense sometimes it's intense I suppose um I'm watching right now uh, I start during quarantine I started watching Vanderpump Rules and honestly I had never been into reality television, but this has been, I, I can't get, I cannot get enough of it. And I'm not allowed to, to watch it without my partner because um, it's the thing that we watch together. Um, and it it kills me like when we can't watch it together one night because like he's busy or I'm busy. And we I won't be able to watch another episode for a week because he's on vacation right now. And um, it's, I, God, I just love her to pump rolls so much. Honestly, that I and... I almost feel that like that type of commitment takes like more trust than like maintaining fidelity. <laughs> like the fact that you have to resist the temptation to watch an episode is that's I know. big. Like that you really care about yeah. someone when you wait, you're, you're able to yeah. put that off. 
Well, it's just like, I feel like also we have such incredible discussions during this because there's so much terrible stuff that these people do to each other in this show. And then we like talk about it and analyze it. And it's so interesting. (laughs) I feel like it's like a deep bonding show for us. And like, we're both so deeply invested and have like so many opinions about these people's lives. I don't know. I think that this is like what reality television was made for. I never, I never did stand it before but I do stand it now I love I I I like it it's great (laughs) I totally appreciate that as well um I'm a big reality tv show fan but I like don't like to tell people that because I (laughs) I feel bad like I feel in my core and I used to judge things and then once I started watching them I was like well I've I've now bandwagoned and it's it's where I'm at now (laughs) So I know I can't even deny my my um coping mechanism with that is just to aggressively and loudly love it so that it it feels like I didn't betray myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Before we head into our next segment, Taylor, I do want to share just a teeny little something. But um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, we got a foster dog in my house and he has not. He has been so confused on how to sit and he gets, he like turns around in circles and he like, we say like, Brian sit and we're trying, we try and train him so bad. Um, like we've been trying to train him so hard. I mean, and it's been really difficult and challenging. Um, cause he just, he just gets so confused and doesn't know what to do. It gets really overwhelmed and just goes into his crate and sits there and looks at us like, is this the right thing? Um, no. but today I know today we got him to sit. And then he's just kept doing it every time. I think we've trained him to sit today. I'm so proud of him. Wait, so um, was he just confused on how to actually sit as a dog or how to, like, respond to the command? Well, he definitely didn't know how to respond to the commands. But I also think that he, like, like he, I've seen Brian, his name, my dog's name is Brian. I've seen Brian <laughs> sit like (laughs) a total of like three or four times just on his own like he doesn't sit he's either like laying or like pacing around so I think for him conceptually like even the way that we get him to sit it's like we catch him right before he's about to lay down with the clicker and like give him a treat so he like stays in that like sitting Halfway. position that a dog is in right before they lay down. <laughs> I feel like some people do that. Like have you ever been around a person that like just doesn't like to sit down? Like everyone else would be sitting and they're just like standing in the corner with their arms crossed. Like I just want to stand. Yeah. That always makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And Brian is the dog version of that. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Well, he's getting so much better because he's sat today. Good, good ups for Brian this week. Good ups for Brian. Um, okay. Well, with that, we'll move on to our next segment. So today we are going to do a little Google Diaries. So Taylor, hit us with your Google Diary for this week. Okay. So I actually had a lot of Google Diaries built up. Um, and Does not surprise me. I, I, I don't realize how much I Google and then I look and it's a lot of like things about like bugs and like culinary stuff um but I did I recently made um some cupcakes and I realized like I don't have toothpicks toothpicks and every time I go to like bake something I you use a toothpick to like check if it's ready and every mm-hmm. time I go to bake something I remember that although I've lived at my same place for almost a year I have yet to go buy toothpicks mm-hmm. and so I finally googled <laughs> how like what else I can use and I thought this would be helpful to share 
Um, I said, like, what can you substitute as a toothpick? And you can substitute spaghetti. Yes. And it is the best thing. I'm not going to buy toothpicks because I always have some sort of spaghetti around and um, it works just as well. And so that was what I had Googled this week was like, what can you use instead of a toothpick to check if your baked goods are done? <laughs> okay. Well, um, my Google diary slash Ecosia diary this week uh, was our horses native to North America. Did you know that they're, they are, but like not the ones that we have today? Wow. So that's interesting. I'm like, my brain yeah. is going to like Pangea thoughts. Because there had to be well, horses okay. in places. Yeah. So there were horses. I think it was, when was it? It was like, so there were horses 13,000 years ago on this continent. They're like traces of horses from then, but they went extinct then. Like those are the last traces of horses that we have. And then those like fossilized traces of horses that we have, I guess, are different from the current ones that we have, which horses were like brought over during the Spanish Inquisition. So for me, it was like unclear as to whether those horses like breeded with the horses that were already here, but there were in fact no horses already here. So <laughs> horses, the horses we have today are not native to North America. The horses that were native died because evolution yes. apparently did not work out in their favor. Exactly. The Pangea split like was a, a dice roll and they just got the snake eyes. They got the snake eyes, man. Yikes. Yup. Well, rest, rest, rest in peace. Native American Pangea horses. We miss yes. you dearly. <laughs> we do. It's, it's been literally so many years. <laughs> oh. So with that being said, Paula, I'm wondering, uh, what is the study that you have for us today? Yes. So the study we have today is called To Risk or Not to Risk, Anxiety and the Calibration Between Risk Perception and Danger Mitigation. Ooh. Wow. Do you, okay. like my, do you like my sound effect? I did. I think that added a lot. Very X-Files. Um, so <laughs> so where was the study done? It was done at the University of Western Australia, and it was published in 2015. So uh, the aim of this study, and we're going to use a lot of big words. Okay. So bear Bracing. with me. Bracing myself. The, the aim of this study was, quote, to investigate whether anxiety is characterized by an enhanced or compromised calibration of danger mitigation behavior to variation in risk magnitude. Dude, what? Like, <laughs> whoa, like, okay, so what does all of that really mean? Can we break that down a bit? <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about anxiety and risk and we'll get to all the nitty gritty details eventually. So, okay. We, we we are familiar with anxiety. It's generally thought Familiar? To... That's a really nice <laughs> word for it. Very generous. Um, it's generally thought to have an evolutionary purpose. So it gives you um, an enhanced ability, we can say, to deal with potential threat because it sends you all of these like psychological and cognitive symptoms. So you get a flutter in your stomach and you're like, I have to do something and that... That is like an anxiety reaction that will help when reacting to potential threats. Okay. So you're basically saying it's like that that stomach flip that happens uh, when you get like nervous that motivates you to do something to avoid bad things happening. That's like what anxiety's function is. Exactly. Yeah. And so past research... Um, about anxiety has shown that people with high levels of what we call trait anxiety mm. have 
heightened perceptions of the severity of potential negative events. So that means like you think that the severity of the potential bad thing is higher than it really is. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So there's that. And then they also have a heightened perception that those negative events will happen. Okay. So then you think the likelihood of the bad thing happening is higher. Exactly. Okay. So with those two things in mind, high trait anxious people are less likely to take risks. Mm -hmm. Um, They have something that's called a safety bias, which just shows that you have a tendency to avoid all perceived risks. Okay. So previous research has shown us that people with high trait anxiety will try to avoid those risks more than low trait anxiety individuals. But this study is looking at whether an anxious person is better at responding to risk or whether that is compromised. Okay. So it's aiming to understand how having high or low trait anxiety affects people's risk perceptions. So how dangerous someone thinks something is. Okay. And then in turn, they're what we call danger mitigation, which is the steps someone takes to avoid the potential negative effect. Okay. So it's basically you're saying that depending on where their level of anxiety is, it's going to change how they perceive the risk, which is going to change how they then respond to what they think that risk is. Yeah. Respond to stopping that risk from happening. Okay. Okay. So since we're talking a little bit about this, could you tell us a little bit more about risk perception and danger mitigation? Yes. So for risk perception, there's two different things that have been studied that have been studied. So for risk perception, there's two different pieces that have been studied more extensively. Okay. Those two different pieces that influence risk perception are the likelihood of the risk happening and then the severity of the risk. So risk likelihood is how likely the negative event will occur if you don't take any steps to reduce that risk. Okay. So risk likelihood would be like, Hmm, let's see, like a high risk thing might be like, I'm thinking like likelihood would be like getting stung by, a maybe not even stung by a bee. High risk likelihood would be, what's something that happens all the time? Getting bitten by a mosquito. Oh, thank you. Great one. So high risk getting bit by a mosquito or high risk likelihood getting bitten by a mosquito. Um, Mm -hmm. Low risk likelihood would be like getting struck by lightning, hopefully. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Yes. Um, And then risk severity, which is how bad the outcome of a negative event will be if no mitigating behavior is taken. Okay. So risk severity would be like um, if I stub my toe, the severity of me doing that is like not very high versus if I fall Mm -hmm. off a cliff, um, that's that's pretty bad. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like the outcome of stubbing your toe is much easier to deal with than the outcome of falling off of a cliff. Okay. So this study is looking at these two different aspects of risk. Got it. Yes. And what about danger mitigation? Yes. So the reason that they're talking about danger mitigation like evolutionarily is because like taking steps to reduce reduce danger can be costly psychologically, energetically. It's it takes your t- it takes time and resources. So um, understanding like whether your decision to mitigate danger or not is adequate to the level of danger involved 
is important to analyze so, in general. So danger mitigation is like, um, like a good example of it based on what we were just talking about would be like if you are on a cliff maybe wearing like a safety harness that's a safety harness like mm-hmm. that's a good danger mid- but like a bad thing would be maybe like always wearing steel boots everywhere because that would be really difficult to avoid like stubbing my toe yeah exactly it's like wearing your helmet in the grocery store as opposed to wearing your helmet when you're riding a that's bike. awkward because you know i have been wearing my helmet in the grocery store <laughs> And everything helps in COVID, you know? I do too sometimes. You just, you can't. <laughs> I guess I'm high anxiety. All right, kidding. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, so back to the study. Okay, so this study was looking to find out how risk perception impacts danger mitigation in high trait anxious people. How did yes. they, like, actually choose to look at this in the study? Yeah, so they chose undergrad um, psych students from the University of Western Australia where they were conducting the study Good and Maybe. how they evaluated their level of anxiety was they um, grouped them into two groups by they did the Spielberger state trait anxiety inventory and then if they were in the top third of the sample or the bottom third of the sample so if they had classically high trait anxiety or classically low trait anxiety according to this evaluation then they were pulled into this study so they ended up with 37 low trait anxious participants and 39 high trait anxious participants okay um and it's good to know like this spielberger state trait anxiety inventory is actually a self-report measure um, that's been shown to be valid in other experiments so there's a lot of like inventories or um, surveys that uh, researchers use across time because they've been proven to uh, that to effectively measure what they're looking to measure. And so we can kind of trust this inventory. And so mm-hmm. they talk about state and trait. So state anxiety, they look to measure, and that is has items such as like, I am tense or I am worried or I feel calm or I feel secure, while the trait anxiety, which is what we're really talking about in this study, measures more like kind of long-term items that include things like, I worry too much over something that doesn't really matter, or I am content and I'm a steady person. So these these trait anxiety versus state anxiety are more like kind of pervasive personality characteristics. Yeah, and so then they they use this these evaluations to pull these participants in. Mm-hmm. So in this study, we had those, well, they had. I wasn't there. They had. <laughs> we the, wish we were that cool. The, yeah. The uh, high and low trait anxious participants play a sort of um, computer game where they were at risk of being subjected to, like, loud noise bursts. Ugh. So, wh- yeah. So they were they were looking at colored squares on, like, a spectrum of green to red. Ah! ah! I'm sorry. I just wanted to subject you guys to a loud mo- noise burst. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, because. My heart rate is through the roof. I wanted to demonstrate how uncomfortable it is. So, sorry. Sorry. Going back. So they, they were subjecting these people <laughs> to loud noise bursts. Thanks for the demonstration, Taylor. I apologize to all of all of our listeners and to you, Paula. I did not warn anyone that I was going to be doing that. So, so it's no. but you can see that's that's actually something that like participants would want to avoid, and so that's you know what their yes. consequence was kind of in this. 
Yes. So um, when they were looking at the screen, they were presented with these squares and from a spectrum of green to red. And those the colors represented how loud of a noise burst they would receive, which is the risk severity, right? The loudness of it. Oh, right. And then the green to red also um, represented the chance that the noise burst would be delivered. So that's what we call the risk likelihood. Okay, so there were two squares. One was how loud the sound would be, and then one was how likely it was for the sound to happen. Okay. Right. And so um, to figure out how likely they would be to try and avoid the loud noises, so mitigate danger, Mm -hmm. the participants were given the opportunity to mitigate that danger by using this virtual coin. So they could use the coin to stop from having to experience that uncomfortable and annoying sound. So they could use this virtual coin to mitigate the danger, but they had to make a strong decision because if they use that coin once, they wouldn't get another coin for two more trials. Ooh, risky. Exactly. So that was how they were able to ev- like evaluate when that like risk in mitigating the danger was taken. Right. It does make sense. Okay. So, and then the change in probability of investing a coin for the different combinations of risk likelihood and risk severity that served as like the measure of how they were adjusting to that danger Mm -hmm. and taking action and mitigating that response. So what did they end up finding? What were the results of the study? Yeah, so the results showed that high anxious participants were significantly more likely to invest that coin when the risk severity increased, so when the volume of the noise burst increased. Okay. Um, but in contrast, but in contrast, higher anxiety was not associated with investing that coin when the likelihood of that loud burst increased. Okay, so they responded more to like how loud it was than how likely it was that they were going to get this noise. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So if the severity of the danger goes up, their attempts to stop the danger go up more than people with low anxiety. Precisely. Yeah. So what do these results suggest? Yeah, so it suggests that high anxious people were, or high trait anxious participants rather, were less likely than low trait to engage in danger mitigation when the degree of danger was small and more likely to engage in danger mitigation when the degree of the danger was large. Okay, so you're saying like you're saying like the study is suggesting that people who have high anxiety are better able to distinguish when they should or shouldn't minimize risk. Precisely. Interesting. That's exactly what That's the study weird. is suggesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, And then the last thing that I wanted to point out is that it is important to note that clinical anxiety is a different concept from high trait anxiety, Mm. although they may overlap. Okay. But high trait anxiety might be associated with more adaptive and cognitive behavioral response to threat, um, whereas clinical anxiety might be more dysfunctional, which can be debilitating more than helpful. But yeah, that's the study study. Um, Taylor, you wanted to point out there were just a couple of limitations in the study as well. So yeah, I, I do think um, this is a really interesting study because it's kind of showing us that like in our society today, anxiety seems like it is really this 
really overwhelming peace that can make day-to-day life really difficult. Like you were saying, it can be more debilitating than helpful to have high anxiety, right? Um, But anxiety, having high trait anxiety can actually show that you're more likely to better understand risk and um, then respond to it by taking like maybe more safe and danger mitigating behaviors. Uh, So anxiety can be maybe good. Um, It is important that as we're considering these results of this study that we think about Mm -hmm. some limitations. So the study was conducted with undergraduate students. So just keeping in mind like where our brain development is as undergraduate students, um, Mm -hmm. we may be more likely to engage in risky behaviors. Um, I don't I don't know if anyone is familiar with the good old college <laughs> years and the choices you make in it. Um, but but essentially to that age group is maybe more likely to engage in risk taking behaviors. So that may like have impacted the study or or risk and it may look different in a different age group population. So a better way to do this study in the future would be to include a, maybe a larger sample with different age groups. Mm-hmm. And making adjustments for controls in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I found this study to be particularly interesting in the times of COVID with just, you know, the mask wearing, the hand washing. There's all of these danger mitigation behaviors that we are instructed to take and or advised or, you know, urged strongly to take. And I think... It's been fascinating to see how different people engage with those behaviors personally. Yeah. I And it makes me think of the study actually had like, you know how there were the squares with the like kind of red mm-hmm. to green. There mm-hmm. was also one square for each, like the likelihood and the severity that was like yeah. a random square kind of like it would just be like this mishmash of like kind of stained glass colors. Um, mm-hmm. So they wouldn't know. And that that. In this, the stained glass, the uncertainty of what the risk is, if that, when that came up, that makes me think of COVID-19 and and how we're responding. Because I think it's really difficult because some things are a clear, like red to green in our lives of like level of risk. And I think that COVID-19 is a big question mark. You know, they say like, okay, so there's, in the likelihood of whether or not you're going to get it, that's that's a huge question mark and a huge debate there's different levels of safety that people are taking there's different levels in different areas of the country of how likely you are to get risk um and then there's also the piece of like how severe it's going to be for you because most of us that are young I think are assuming that things are going to be okay and most of us who are more elderly are like very scared of the severity of the risk but it could it doesn't mean that because you're elderly, you're going to have a severe case of it. And it doesn't mean that because you're young, you're going to be okay. Yeah, it's just constantly changing. And so, like, I think I, I think we don't have an accurate read of what the danger severity or the likelihood even is because we're getting so many different signals from so many different places. But I think it's fascinating how, like, some people that I would categorize, like, in my own non-scientific way, I would categorize as, like, high-trait anxious, like myself and some other people I know, are, like, taking way more precautions and, like, truly not leaving their house or, like, I'm leaving my house. But, like, not wearing a mask, showering the moment you get – or wearing a mask, sorry, showering the moment you get home, you know, stripping all of your clothes at the door, all of those things I feel like – are things that more anxious people are 
doing. And then like a lot of low anxious people are just like, oh, well, you know, I'll wear a mask, you know, um, but I mean, we're not going to go crazy. Like I'm still going to give hugs and, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to see how everyone is dealing with it in regards to like anxiety, like anxiety levels affecting Right. Because I think it's like this is one of the factors that's playing into it right. is how much you. Yeah. And I, I agree. I'm a very similar person where I'm like high anxious. And I think the the precautions of being like high anxiety in this COVID-19 are great. Right. It's good to have the extra precautions, but it's also mentally and emotionally and physically draining to maintain those and so this is like one area of risk that we're exploring but if you think about like how someone with high anxiety might mitigate risk across their life like the amount of just brain space it takes up to keep those high anxiety like risk danger mitigation strategies like up that's it just is a lot of work it's taxing right Um, well it's funny because it makes me it this also makes me think of um like um millennials and zoomers dealing with climate change and how like climate change before wasn't being screamed at like you know when at least like boomers were growing up like it wasn't like talked about all the time and I feel like now it very often is um and so early on in their lives when like you know millennials and zoomers are like developing still and they're hearing all of these threats about the potential extinction of our people which is an in I would say the danger severity in that is so high that is the loudest noise there ever was and it's just fascinating to see how millennials and zoomers truly truly are like trying to do things (laughs) to help that to I help stop climate change from happening a really good point in the distinguishing like the likelihood and the severity because like you said like the impacts of climate change are legitimately catastrophic as like every scientist yeah. has like talks about and they'll give you all of the different things about why however um it's, it almost seems that the likelihood or the perception of the risk the perception of that likelihood it differs because we yes we have like a generation that is much younger and is kind of facing those deadlines and then we have a generation where it seems that seems like very distant to them and yeah isn't really well the likelihood for them not, not my problem is yeah is incredibly low and the severity for them is incredibly low because they won't be here so it, it's it's fair that it's not triggering an immediate neurological response I mean I wouldn't say it's fair but I'm saying it's pro- that's probably or at least a, a large factor is that it's not triggering that because it really won't impact them directly at least not for people with high anxiety and i think it is important to show right. like so the people who qualified as high anxiety high trait anxiety in the study um were near the realm of like being able to qualify for like clinical anxiety um, as we had mm-hmm. kind of talked about before and um it may be that like people who have clinically anxiety people who are clinically anxious are more responsive or maybe take in these like bigger issues as like a personal concern or like feel that they will be more impacted by them than people with low anxiety or maybe low anxiety Mm -hmm. might be like the general population that doesn't suffer from anxiety um so maybe then they don't internalize these 
concerns as like yeah. impacting them. And so then they don't do that danger mitigation, uh, which is like recycling yeah. and not throwing bottles out of your car. That irks me. I can't. I get immediately so angry every time I see someone throw something out of their car or on the on ramp to the highway. Stop it. Stop that. This is a PSA. This is a mean for a sec that is unplanned. Please, (laughs) for the love of everything good, just stop it. I'm going to like drive in front of you and cut you off and like throw garbage into your I won't do any of these things but just please don't do that (laughs) I was was trying to get like really you know bossy there or something but I I won't do any of that but just don't do it it's not nice and it's not good it's just rude you're gonna eat that one day like truly like that if you think about that like if you think about the fact that every piece of garbage you throw onto the ground you're likely going to ingest at some point because if you're eating what? fish, if you're, you know, I don't if think you're that, eating fish, I don't think that the people who typically eat fish are the same people who typically litter. I think these are different subsets of populations we are talking about, Paula. I mean, people love shrimp, don't they? So many people eat shrimp. Shrimp is one of the shrimp is the highest eaten like seafood at, at every every place that offers shrimp. That's true. Like, that's true. You know what? I forgot about shrimp. And like shrimp is good, right? Yeah, exactly. If you're eating anything that comes from the ocean, like boom you're probably gonna ingest a little piece of the piece of the trash that you just threw on the ground like if you thought of it that way you probably wouldn't so do basically it. what paula is saying is instead of throwing your gatorade bottle out of the car just eat it now save the cycle just eat your trash yeah just eat it now eat yeah trash. absolutely so moral of the study and the story and all of everything is just eat your trash eat um, your trash eat your trash so that will that's a good danger mitigation practice is eating your own trash from now on, I'm going to live by that. Um, shall- <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what happens in our brains. Shall we move on to our next segment, Paula? Yeah, let's move on to our next segment. Okay, so today our final segment is a animal house where Paula will bring us fascinating information about a very bizarre animal fact. Yeah, so I didn't really want to speak about one animal in particular so much as I cannot get enough of all of the pictures of chromatophores and squids. So like let's let's talk about that for Can a second. Can you tell me what a chromatophore Chro- is? Yeah. So they are chromatophores are the cells in a squid's like skin, I guess, and they change colors, which is like <gasps> crazy but they they change colors to like communicate with other cephalopods this gets me jived i know isn't that the coolest thing in the whole world they're like are used to like attract other you know they they use to like attract females or um repel males like if you're a female you don't want oh my god i would love that if i was just on a dance floor I could just turn my skin like bright orange or like neon yeah. yellow and people would just go away. That would go be away. amazing. Yeah. I would be bright orange and yellow literally all the time on the dance floor. Nobody would be around me. It'd be amazing. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just really cool. I highly recommend you look up pictures of um, chromatophores. Wait. Do you know like what types of information they like communicate because now I'm like I've thought about this this is like my idea about society and I know maybe we'll go in this direction someday with some sort of like weird google glasses (laughs) but like I think it would be cool to like be able to like advertise yourself as like single or taken or looking for a job opportunity or you know what other things uh like so it would be cool if like I could just be 
green walking through the world and people like knew that you there's another option is you could wear a sign on your back why do I feel like that would just like read wrong I don't know (laughs) but it would be really cool if I could turn it on and off so like you know like I'm walking down the street and like a really hot guy is running the opposite way and I'm like oh yeah let me turn my green on and then like I'm at a club dancing and I'm like no 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 today we are bright yellow that means leave me alone like it would be really nice if I could just send like vibes out via color um, like a like a cephalopod is it cephalopod uh cephalopods yeah yeah like a a cephalopod there's a lot of reasons I want to be like a cephalopod but that is one of them (laughs) I I I love the idea of you (laughs) wearing a sign on your back that says I'm single (laughs) people would be like uh who pranked you and I'd be like, no, 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 I chose no. to do this. Um, this is who I am. This so. is human nature. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that was Animal House for the week. And this was our episode today. You know, Thank you so it, much for... It just if I were to put that sign on my back, it might as well be a tattoo. Because having that sign there would make it permanent enough that it would might as well be a tattoo. <laughs> no. No, Taylor. Somebody would be like, oh... Thank you for the heads up and make their way over. And it would probably be someone that I would like want to be yellow for. So that would be (laughs) good, good, good. Well, um, that's something that you are going to have to settle down with (laughs) that idea that anybody that approaches you, you're not going to (laughs) want. Yikes. Well, okay. Well, let's not get into my personal um, pickiness on the dating scene. Moving on. Uh, moving on. I mean, moving on. Thank you so much for joining us this week, y'all. Um, thank you for joining us through this risk perception study and all of our other segments. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for hanging in with our, our big words. We love you and want to be green when we're around you. And <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
Study Buddies was created by Paula Sanchez Abreu and Taylor Collins. Our graphic design was done by Monica Ray Summers Gonzalez, and our intro song was composed by singer-songwriter Caught In Between. You can follow Study Buddies on Instagram at studybuddies.com and email the show at studybuddiespodcast at gmail.com.